Okay, we're still in the Lord's Prayer, and we are in Matthew chapter 6, at least for one of the accounts of the Lord's Prayer, the other being in Luke 11. And I was going to try to uh, complete uh, this thing about um, uh, forgiving our debts as we forgive our debtors, and I wasn't, I really was stressed out about that, and I couldn't make a full message out of that. I may come back and deal with it later, but I'm going to just move on to the last phrase that we're going to deal with, which is in verse 13 of Matthew chapter 6. In Matthew chapter 6, he says, And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil. Now, what we've been saying up to this point is questioning the location of this prayer in the Sermon on the Mount, the proclamation of the coming of the kingdom of God, the gospel of the kingdom being at hand, which we saw in chapter 3 from John the Baptist, chapter 4 from, the, from Jesus, and then in chapter 5 he begins the Sermon on the Mount and, and begins teaching precepts concerning the kingdom. So what's the relationship then of this prayer in the midst of all of this kingdom teaching here? And as we've looked at it, we look at the roots, the roots of the kingdom, (laughs) the prayer in the Old Testament. And the biggest connection that we've been able to make is with the Exodus. Now, This will be later, next week, hopefully, as we look to wrap this up, is to see that in this prayer, there is direct connection to the Exodus, which we've repeated several times, but not just the Exodus, but to the Messianic prophecies, as well as to the covenants, and in particular, the Davidic covenant. And to see that this prayer really focuses on God's fulfillment of everything that he has promised in the Old Testament, in all the covenants. And one of the things, of course, that we have focused on, and I see the biggest connection with, is the relationship to the deliverance of God's people from Egypt as a type as a picture of what is yet to come. What God has inaugurated in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and his death on the cross, his burial, his ascension, but what is yet promised with respect to the the setting in motion of those events that will bring about his kingdom rule over the earth. So that's what we're looking at, and that's what we have looked at in all of these phrases in here, and, and saw some very key terms used, not just in the Hebrew Scriptures, but in the Septuagint Scriptures. Using the same words out of this prayer and found them used in the Old Testament, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which was done about 250 years before Jesus even came, to be born on the earth, 
And they use these same words in connection with this Exodus. So, having said all of that, um, what we're claiming then and, and, and looking at is that this Old Testament Exodus points toward a new Exodus. Only in the sense that, as you think about the old Exodus from Egypt, that all of this typically speaks of a new deliverance that's going to happen in the future. But the key difference, of course, being one that will be permanent. And everything about it's going to be permanent. You remember that so many of the things that God taught his people when he brought them out of Egypt were conditional. He says, if you'll do this, then I will be your God. And if you'll do this, I will bless you in the land and you'll have plenty and da-da-da-da-da. And then he gave uh, all the precepts for their relationship to him in the tabernacle and the offering system and the shedding of blood and so on regarding sins. Whereas in the future new exodus, when God brings all of these things to completion, there's going to be a finality to every single thing that was temporary there. And in this prayer, this prayer that the Lord is teaching his disciples has a connection then between that old exodus and what he's promised to do yet in the future of gathering his people from around the countries of the world where they are today and bringing in the Gentiles and fulfilling all of those covenants in one fell swoop in the events that will take place, you know, and, and, and many things have to happen regarding the rapture and the tribulation and the uh, setting in motion of the kingdom events that will establish Christ's rule over the earth and the marriage supper and all of those things that will, will, will go together. Um, so when he prays here, lead us not in tempt, into temptation. You know, if you look at the vast number of commentaries, most of them talk about God leading us, not tempting us, or God not leading us into a tempting situation where we might sin. And, and it really is, uh, you know, it leaves you with some fuzzy thinking, because you're thinking, well, how, how could this be? I mean, based, well, first of all, based on what we've already learned, we think you should, I hope you're already thinking, this doesn't seem to fit. This doesn't make any sense. If that's what he's talking about, lead us not into temptation. And how could this, this little thing, lead us not into temptation, make any sense when over in the book of James, James says God doesn't tempt anybody to sin. Turn over there to James if you would. James chapter 1. I think it's fair that we, we start there and read such verses 
to establish this point that God doesn't tempt us to sin. In verse 13, he says, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempts he any man. Now, in the same way that we do in English, you know, we we don't always add in all the words that we could because when we're standing around having a conversation, we understand the context in which we're speaking. And it's the same way here in the Scriptures. So when you read this verse, at the end of verse 13, when he, when he says, neither tempts he any man, you could add in the words yourself to evil. Because that's the context in which James is speaking about God not tempting any man. God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man to evil. He doesn't do that. He doesn't tempt us with the idea of sin being the end result. And we need to understand that. Now, does he test us? Well, all you got to do is go over to verse 2 of chapter 1. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into divers temptations or various testings. Certainly he tests us. But he doesn't test us with the idea that sin might be the end result. The testing has to do with the development of our character, the increase of our faith, and our growth in Christ. So what does that have to do then with verse 13 back in Matthew chapter 6? Lead us not into temptations. Well, the Greek word there is uh, parasmos. And it's most frequently in the King James Version translated temptations. Do you know what? I did a little little counting. I don't usually do this kind of stuff, but sometimes it really can be enlightening and helpful. This word is translated trial, and I looked at 24 different translations. It's amazing to think there's 24 New Testament translations, but that's, there's way more than that. I looked at 24 of them. Out of those, let me back up. Go over to Revelation chapter 3. You know this verse well. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 10. He says there, because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation. Now that's that same word that you find back in Matthew 6 and also in James 1, parasmos, which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. Now, On that verse there alone, out of 24 translations, 14 of them translate it trial. 
Uh, seven of them translated testing, and three, which included the King James, and also Daniel Webster's, which is almost the same as the King James. I mean, you might as well call it the King James. Three. Three trans translated it temptation. So what's the point of all this? Is that this word can be translated as trial or test just as easily as it can be translated as temptation. And it is translated trial in other places. And it, it is translated trial in the Septuagint of the Old Testament. So we're going to take a look at that so that we, I think we can see then, knowing that, we can see the connection <coughs> Excuse me, <coughs> between the two. You know, back in Genesis, in chapter 22 and verse 1, it says, God tempted Abraham. Would you think that God was tempting Abraham to see... Let's see if that guy will sin. I don't think so at all. He was putting a test forth for Abraham as to his faith, as to his character as a believer in the one true God, in Yahweh, and the promises that God had made to him. So in, in the... Um, in the Net Bible, that's the New English translation over there in James, um, it, he listen to how they translate it this way. And they use these words, God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself tempts no one to evil. But each one is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Now that's a temptation to sin. But the temptation to sin comes when we are tempted by our own desires that come from within, not something that comes from without <clears throat> and from God. So I think it, hopefully we would see that it's clear here that Jesus is not teaching his disciples that uh, temptation to sin is what is in view but it's temptation to trials. And I think that would be a much fairer translation here than temptation because it skews our thinking automatically. I mean, when we think of temptation, I think we almost always think of sin on our part. Now, Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, but it certainly wasn't to sin. Now, um, so what, what is he teaching us? I think then, the, um, to be consistent with the context here and the prayer that Jesus is teaching about the Lord, uh, the coming of the Lord and his kingdom, he's teaching us about escaping trial. Teaching us that we should pray that we might escape trial or even testing. This word parasmos, um, um, well, we dealt with that. I'm going to move on here so I can, because I took extra time about announcements, and I'm going to move on. Um, with the, with the end-time orientation of this prayer that we've already looked at, 
um, so far, I think that this, you could only expect this phrase to have the same connection that every other phrase that we've looked at in this prayer would have. And I think it has a connection to the end time tribulation, the end time events that are about to come upon the earth, and I think they're around the corner, and I think there may be some for us as well. Um, that these things are going that, that are going to occur immediately before the manifestation of the kingdom rule of our Lord Jesus and the, 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 the inauguration or the setting in motion of those events that will lead to his, his establishment of his throne and his rule over the earth. Now, a little further look at this word parasmos in the, in the Old Testament, and particularly with the Septuagint's usage of that word, I want to look at that, in particular, its relationship to the Exodus. In Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 7, if you'll turn back there, beginning in verse 1, a couple of these passages are, are a little bit lengthy, but I think when we read them, you'll, you know, you'll see the, the connection. At least that's, that's what I'm hoping for, and that's the idea. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 1 where it says, When the Lord thy God shall bring thee into the land, whither thou goest to possess it, and hath cast out many nations before thee, the Hittites and the Girgashites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and Perizzites and so on. Verse 2, When the Lord thy God shall deliver them before thee, thou shalt smite them and utterly destroy them. Thou shalt make no covenant with them, nor show mercy unto them. Then if you'll skip down to verse 17. If thou shalt say in thine heart, well, these nations are more than I, how can I dispossess them? Thou shalt not be afraid of them, but shalt well remember what the Lord thy God did unto Pharaoh and to all Egypt. I think that's, that's telling right there. That in their desire and effort to take possession of the land that God had promised, he sends them back to the events that took place in Egypt to remind them about the greatness of God and the might and the power that God showed to his people in bringing them out of Egypt. And so in verse 19 then he says, the great temptations... That's in the King James. In the Septuagint, that word is parasmos. The same word that is used in the Lord's Prayer and that could very easily be translated trial. As a matter of fact, several other translations use the word trials. In the great trials which thine eyes saw, and the signs and the wonders, and the mighty hand, and the stretched out arm, whereby the Lord thy God brought thee out, so shall the Lord thy God do unto all the people of whom thou art afraid. So the Lord was teaching them 
that in this deliverance from, now think of it, just, ah, think of it this way. So you had God bringing um, Israel out of Egypt and in the, in the intervening time brought them up to the promised land and says, look back here to the Exodus and the same might, the same signs, the same wonders that you saw in Egypt, I've got just as much power and ability to bring you into the land as I did to bring you out from Egypt. I brought you out. I can bring you in. So, if you'll look down then, or well, let's go over to Deuteronomy chapter 29. If you'd turn over there, Deuteronomy chapter 29. And look at verse 1 there, where he says, I'll give you a chance to get there. Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 1, where he says, These are the words of the covenant which the Lord commanded Moses to make with the children of Israel in the land of Moab beside the covenant which he made with them in Horeb. And then he says, I'm reading, I copied that over here, so I'm reading off my notes here. And Moses called unto all Israel and said unto them, You have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt, unto Pharaoh and unto all his servants and unto all his land. The great temptations. Look at that phrase. He uses the same phrase again. The great trials which thine eyes have seen the signs and those great miracles. Now, having looked at those, turn all the way back to chapter 4 of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 4, <clears throat> excuse me, and verse 27. couldn't find it. There we go. One more page. Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 27. And the Lord shall scatter you among the nations, and ye shall be left few in number among the heathen, whither the Lord shall lead you. And there ye shall serve gods, the work of men's hands, wood and stone, which neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. But if from there thou shalt seek the Lord thy God, thou shalt find him if thou seek him with all thy heart and with all thy soul. I thought that was just a really, you know, that's an amazing thing. That the Lord says that if you fail, and of course we know they did, and I send you out to all these nations around the world and scatter you, that in your scattering, if you seek me, you will find me. So in verse 30, he says, When thou art in tribulation, and all these things are come upon thee, even in the latter days, if thou shalt turn to the Lord, if you turn to the Lord thy God, and shall be obedient unto his voice, for the Lord thy God is a merciful God, he will not forsake thee, neither destroy thee, nor forget the covenant of thy fathers, which he sware unto them. For ask now, oh, excuse me, yeah, verse 32. For ask now of the days that are past, which were before thee, 
since the day that God created man upon the earth, and asked from the one side of heaven unto the other, whether there hath been any such thing as this great thing is, or hath been heard like it. Did ever people hear the voice of God speaking out of the midst of the fire, as thou hast heard and live? Or hath God assayed? Now that word assayed, other translations translate it tried, and it's from the same root word as parosmos, as parazo. Has God tried or essayed to go and take him a nation from the midst of another nation by trials, temptations? Our same word, parosmos again. By signs and by wonders and by war and by a mighty hand and by a stretched out arm and by great terrors, according to all that the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes. So my connection here with the Lord's Prayer, lead us not into trials, has to do with this idea that God brought them out of trial in the temptations, the trials of Egypt, and he was bringing them up to the land of promise, the land of Canaan, and he was simply telling them and promising to them that their faith and trust in him at this crisis moment as they were about ready to cross the Jordan River and to go in and take possession of that land, they could fully trust him then just as much as they did when they came out of Egypt. And he uses the same terminology to describe what was to take place. Trials, testings, signs, wonders, miracles, and great power. Then, um, there's so much to tie together here. What was the probably the biggest trial or testing that was faced in Egypt? Well, there was 10 of them. I think they probably built in ascending order all the way up to the 10th one, which was the taking of the firstborn son. God gave them a way to escape that trial. And Egypt had to face it. But had they not done, they would have faced the same trial as the Egyptians in the loss of the firstborn. Now, having said that, in Psalm 95, the psalmist there, which is, a, is quoted in Hebrews chapter 3, uses the same word all over again. So in Psalm 95, okay, so let's just, let's just skip Psalm 95 for the time being since we know where Hebrews came from. Uh, the Hebrews quotation, it came from Psalm 95, but go to Hebrews chapter 3 and let's look at it there. Because here, the author of this 
letter uses the same word in talking about the experience of the Israelites in the wilderness. And he says in verse uh, 8, he says, Harden not your hearts as in the provocation in the day of temptation in the wilderness. Now, um, in Psalm 95, um, he uses the word provocation and he uses the word temptation, but they're, they're technically, they're locations. They're uh, Meribah and Masa. Masa being the place of temptation or trial or testing. Here, though, our New Testament author uses the same word, parasmos, this trial. And then in verse 9, when your fathers tried me, that is, they tempted me, this other form of the same word, parazzo. So all we're trying to do here is show that this same word is used repeatedly in connection with the people of God being delivered from Egypt, their experiences of tempting God in the wilderness, and then ultimately their movement into the land of promise. And uh, I'm going to run out of time if I don't get going here. Let's go back to uh, Matthew chapter 26. And put your finger there. And then go back to Matthew chapter 6 and put your finger there. So that you can kind of go back and forth. Now, what are we looking at here? We're looking at two prayers. One is, of course, the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6. The second one is the Lord's Prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. And I want us to notice the parallel thoughts between these two prayers, because I think they're significant. In the Lord's Prayer, of course, he says in verse 9, Our Father. And as you turn over to Matthew 26, verse 39, why am I in John? I have no idea. I said, hold your finger there, and I think I'll let it go. Here we go. Verse 39, what does he say? Oh, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Oh, my Father. Um, Look at another phrase. When he says this, um, back over in Matthew chapter 6, in verse 10, he says, thy will be done. Now think, just of course imagine, picture in your mind, Jesus bent in prayer in the garden, at this critical moment, after having taught his disciples this prayer, 
And notice what he is praying. So if you turn back in Matthew 26 to verse 42, he says, He went away again the second time and prayed, saying, O my Father, if this cup may not pass away from me except I drink it, your will be done, or thy will be done. You know, if you look at the Greek words, they're exactly the same as those out of this prayer. Not one lick of difference. And then a last one here. He says back in our Matthew 6, in our verse for today, the phrase, lead us not into, into temptation, Back in Matthew chapter 26, verse 41, he told the disciples, watch and pray that you enter not into temptation or that you enter not into trial, to testing. So what is is it all about? What conclusion or what direction can we take from this prayer? I think a very simple one is that the entire prayer has end-time implications to it. Every phrase of the prayer has end-time implications. That when Jesus was teaching his disciples to pray this prayer, everything was to bring the mind and the thought of the disciples back to the roots of their original deliverance and then a future mindset as to what was going to happen in the latter days. When God would, by might and power and miracles and signs and trials, testings, deliver them But he says here, pray that you won't enter into those trials. And we saw in Revelation 3.10 that I'm going to keep you from the hour of trial. Here's why I think that that'll be the case. Or, or, excuse me, (laughs) that sounds funny. Now let me just say it this way. I think that it's that way that we will escape the trial is because Jesus in the garden said, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And what did he do? Well, if you go back to Matthew 26, and I I didn't keep my finger there like a good boy. If you look at verse 39 again, We read it, but I glossed over it because that wasn't the part of I wanted to get to. But look at it again. He says, he went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed, saying, Oh, my father, if it be possible, let this cup. What kind of cup was it? It was a cup of trial. This trial that I'm going to go through. And then... He said, let it pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, 
but as you will. If this is what you have for me, Father, if this is your will, then I'm going to submit to this. And he did. And he endured the trial so that we wouldn't have to endure the trial. Now, I'm not saying that it's automatic. That there is no future trial or no future testing for you and I in the coming days. But I am saying, I think the Lord has made provision for us that we don't have to enter into that coming trial. That coming hour of temptation, which Jesus said and the Lord said in Revelation, will come to try the whole earth. Are we possibly exposed to that? I have found nothing in Scripture that says that the possibility is not there. That we may have to go through some of those trials. But I think he's saying to us, pray that you won't have to enter into them. I think this prayer, the Lord's Prayer, has enriched my soul with those kind of thoughts and that kind of thinking with respect to the coming of the Lord's kingdom and the events that are about to transpire on this earth. And I say about. People have been saying about for quite a few years now. But I think we're closer to saying about than anybody else has ever been before. They're right around the corner. And it's a prayer for us to be prepared and to be ready for that coming day because it is coming. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that we have such assured promises from your word, that we have such benefits and blessings, and to know that when the disciples ask you to teach them to pray, Lord Jesus, that You gave them a prayer that was consistent with everything that our Father gave to us in the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament Scriptures, and that everything that you promised us concerning the coming of a kingdom and the coming of a Messiah and the coming of a a ruler who would rule this earth is all wrapped up in this one little prayer. And that if we would pray this prayer from a believing heart, that you you would accept us and and enable us to live with, with such grace, with such faith, and with such ability that we can face these coming days no matter what transpires before us. Thank you, Father, again for the wonderful things you've promised to us in Christ, in whose name I pray, amen.